Time with your host, Coach Danielle McCartney. You can follow her work on Twitter at Coach McCartney. That's at Coach M-C-C-A-R-T-A-N. Hey, hey, 60 Minute Overtime, Spring 2017, Episode 10. Today is uh, March 19th, 2017. I'm your hostess, Danielle McCartan. Uh, we have a very live, lively audience on Periscope already. This, uh, this is a quick shout out to my work at Coach MCCARTAN. You heard that. YouTube search Coach McCartan with a space in that. SoundCloud.com slash Coach McCartan. On demand, iTunes podcast. Uh, you can type in Coach space m-c-c-a-r-t-a-n also on tune in radio under the show's name 60 minute overtime play.google.com slash coach mccartan also my website pro sports rundown.com we're being video simulcast right now i keep saying we but me uh, on periscope at coach mccartan which goes directly to the twitter feed and also on facebook.com slash coach mccartan there's uh one person on there we got 10 on Periscope right now. It'll build. It'll build throughout. That's how it always works. Uh, today's guest, we're going to have on Steve Cofield, host and namesake of Cofield & Company, the afternoon drive show on ESPN Las Vegas, 1110 AM. I mean, 1100 AM. <laughs> uh, Marco Mazzieri, Squadra Italia's manager. Uh, obviously, Italy just wrapped up the World Baseball Classic uh, by losing. Uh, we'll get into that. We'll talk about that. And uh, some commentary from Ryan Nassib former Giants backup quarterback to Eli Manning. A couple topics you guys can weigh in on today. Uh, if any of these tickle your fancy, we have Jose, we, I, I have Jose Fernandez, the Miami Marlins ace pitcher. Has his legacy been tainted? Hmm. We'll talk about that. We will uh, weigh in on professional sports in Las Vegas, all kinds of professional sports in Vegas, and we'll have the expert Steve Cofield on to talk about that with us. We'll do a little bit of recap around the sports world all around. March Madness Brackets. Where did it get its name from, first of all? Some Cinderella stories. I'll show you my bracket, which it's pretty good. Uh, I might be going to the Final Four. I don't know. I don't know. Then we'll talk a little bit about Jets. Come one, come all to the Jets Circus. Darrell Rivas, whose shirt I'm wearing right now. He's innocent, everybody. I told you that. I told you that month uh over uh, just about a month ago to the day exactly a month ago to the day i told you he was going to be innocent then we have giants fans Uh uh-oh what do you think about geno smith joining your team then the italy like i said world baseball classic recap and that's the plan for today so here's the number to call in got something to say call the studio 201-825-1234 Let's 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 begin with Jose Fernandez. You know him. He was the Miami Marlins ace pitcher. Uh, let's think back to September twenty fifth, twenty sixteen, last September. He was the pitcher that was in the boat crash and died with two two of his friends. Now there's a new report out, everybody, which came out on Thursday from the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. Okay. They concluded that Jose Fernandez, listen up, everybody, listen carefully. Jose Fernandez was drunk, high on cocaine, and speeding, and driving the boat at 65 miles an hour. It was his own boat. Let me say that again. Jose Fernandez, the pitcher for the Marlins that everybody has memorialized in every way, shape, and form, he was drunk. He was high on cocaine, he was speeding, 
and he was driving his own boat at 65 miles an hour, which was the top speed for that particular make and model. He, along with two of his friends, passed away. They were the passengers. And the report concluded, quote, Fernandez operated the boat with his normal faculties impaired in a reckless manner at an extreme high rate of speed in the darkness of the night in an area with known navigational hazards such as rock jetties and channel markers, end quote. So my question to you, my loyal listeners, is does this change your perspective of him, a 24-year-old? Now, this is the same kid, I use that in quotes, air quotes, kid, who jumped off the boat coming illegally from Cuba to the United States to save someone and ended up being his mother. He's got a pregnant girlfriend. He's not married when he died. And she became pregnant only a few weeks after they started dating. Actually, she just gave birth last Friday to baby Penelope, who he had named before he, he, uh, he died. He passed away. 24 years old. Reckless. Feeling of invincibility. He was on the verge of a pro- projected $200 million contract in 2018. Might have been with the Yankees. It's dangerous water because of the obstacles, but it's water he knew well since that was his boat. He's done it before. So does that change your perspective of Jose Fernandez? Jose Fernandez, the the defect from Cuba that comes, saves the person who falls off the boat. Yet here he is in a conclusive report, drunk, high on cocaine, speeding, and behind the wheel of his boat with a pregnant girlfriend at home. And a baseball career that people are comparing to Doc Goodens in terms of talent. Does your perspective change on him? Yeah, mine does. Mine absolutely does. I'll say it now. And I said it a month after his death when I talked about the toxicology report on 60 Minute Overtime. That was back in September. That absolutely does change the perspective for me. Because how idiotic and moronic could you be to be participating in those type of activities? Knowing everything you had going for you. These athletes sometimes feel like they have a feeling of invincibility, that nothing can happen to them. You saw Tom Brady jumping off cliffs in the offseason. People freaked out about that. You saw even uh, the Giants had that boat trip. People freaked out about that. Obviously, that wasn't anything dangerous. But this feeling of invincibility in and among these athletes I mean, hello, you're drunk. You shouldn't even be behind the wheel of a bicycle. Yet you're driving a boat in the blackness of night, black night, with, with rocks. Did You saw it. They crashed up onto a rock a jetty. So, yeah, this absolutely changes it for me. And, and by the way, your girlfriend, who you're not married to, your girlfriend is pregnant at home. So what are you doing out? How many times has he done this before? How many times has he gone out before to do this? And just this time he ended up in tragedy. Did you really care about the girlfriend that you left behind? Shouldn't you, like, you know, be home with her? And, and by the way, I believe this was the night before a game. Like, they skipped his start that day. So, if, that, if I remember correctly. Now, this absolutely changes it for me. Someone just said that's a complete moron attitude. Yeah, I think it is. And all these people that are praising him, singing his praise and this and that. I mean, I said it when it happened. That, that's going to change the perspective for me. 
absolutely changes the perspective for me on that. So Jose Fernandez, sorry, but you're not the guy everybody thought you were. No matter what you did, you're drunk, you're on cocaine, you're speeding, not belted into a boat, (laughs) and then you ended up upside down on a rock jetty in the black, in the dark of night, 3 a.m. I have no sympathy for you. You knew what you had going. Someone said fake public profile. That's right. That's right. Some, sometimes these guys do have that. That's my thought on Jose Fernandez. And that just was uh, not old news, but it's new news. The new report did conclude all of that information on Thursday. So I wanted to bring that back to your attention and to bring also to the, the attention to you that I did say this when it first happened back in September. I did say it. I said it. I said that it was going to change people's perspectives. And I also changed, said that then they waited to publish that report originally that, that he was on drugs, the first report that came out. They waited a month to publish that. Why? Why do you think? Because you got D. Gordon running around the bases after a home run crying his eyes out. You, ha- you have everybody crying their eyes out in the stadium among the team. And that's why they waited. Because if that had come out the, while this was all going on, would it definitely change the perspective? So they waited for everything to die down, and then they published it. And now another news outlet, not news, government agency is publishing that fact. So you know what? I said it. I was right. And there it is. Okay, so number to call in again, 201-825-1234. You want to weigh in on that. Also, we got Las Vegas sports coming up. Uh, we're going to talk to Steve Cofield, host of Cofield & Company on ESPN Las Vegas and on Sirius XM Rush, Channel 93. Okay, what the f***? <laughs> hey, do you remember Manny Ramirez? You know, the World Series winning, dreadlocks, sporting Red Sox outfielder. You remember him? He was big in the heyday. He, he uh, won two World Series with the Red Sox, snapping the one since 1918. Let me just tell you this. He just signed a lucrative contract to play. With the Kochi, Koki, fighting dogs of Japan. <laughs> in a statement, he says, quote, I've always wanted to play in Japan, end quote. I ask, really? Does anybody really ever aspire to play baseball in Japan? An American Major League Baseball player? He wasn't born here, so I can't say American. But does anybody ever aspire to play in Japan? I, w- I want to know. I-, I thought the MLB was the end goal for, for every one of these guys, right? We've seen Ichiro come over. We've seen Hideki Matsui come over. Hideo Nomo. Listen, Manny Ramirez has a net worth of $110 million. Let me say that in lottery terms. $110 million. Yet this new lucrative contract includes optional practices. I wish I can optionally go to work, right? optional practices. He's going to be chauffeured around town in a Mercedes Benz. He's going to be put up in an expensive hotel every single day. And the best part of it all, he worked in all-you-can-eat sushi. What? What? All-you-can-eat sushi? What? So this guy gets all-he-can-eat sushi, and he gets all this stuff 
yet he's worth $110 million. Besides the sushi, because I'm not a sushi fan, really, at all. I don't really, really like fish either, but all, all you can eat sushi. The best part about that is the optional practice. Raise your hand, everybody watching and listening, if you would prefer to have optional work days. I know I would. I have my hand raised. You see it? Optional practices, chauffeured around town, expensive hotel, and all-you-can-eat sushi. What is a guy going to hit? Ten home runs? <laughs> He's so... How old, Does anybody know offhand how old Manny Ramirez actually is? Does anybody know that? Because those pictures that came out of him signing the contract, he looked so bad. He looks so old. Here it is. Manny Ramirez, 44 years old. Birthday is May 30th. So he's going to be 45 years old. 45 years old. That's older than David Ortiz. That's older than Alex Rodriguez. They're both retired. I mean, I just can't wrap my head around this. And by the way, he always wanted to play in Japan. (laughs) Always. Yeah, I find that hard to believe that he always wanted to play in Japan. I find that very hard to believe. ESPN Radio 1100 and 100.9 FM is KWWN, Las Vegas, K265EZ. Hey, this is Steve Cofield, host of Cofield & Company on ESPN Las Vegas and on Sirius XM's Rush Channel 93. Uh, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good, good. All right, so first, got to get this out of the way. Um, for my listeners, guys, he's a New Jersey guy, yet... He's uh, finding a home in, in Las Vegas, has found a home in Las Vegas. So, Steve, i got to ask you, how, how did that happen? <laughs> uh, I came out here in 1996. Basically, connections. I had a friend who was uh, working behind the scenes that I had gone to school with at WFAN. He was working at WFAN, and he came out to Las Vegas to work for a uh, a national network. And I did a kind of a, a, it's not really an interview, but a a meet and greet with the boss and, uh, you know, get to know you session. And then a couple months later, they needed somebody. So he asked me if I wanted a gig behind the scenes and it took off from there. So I came out and I got the host eventually. And uh, I've pretty much been here like 18 of the last 20 years in Vegas and have seen the town grow from uh, a small town to a pretty big town now. So you would be the perfect guy to ask. So I want to kind of paint a picture of professional sports in Las Vegas. So let's go with first with NASCAR. So starting in 2018, for my listeners, starting in 2018, Las Vegas is officially going to be the only city in history to host two triple-header NASCAR weekends. So, Steve, let me ask you, what is the impact of that on the community adding that second race? Uh, it should be gigantic. They're actually uh, talking to people – Last night, I actually know one of the one of the vendors who uh, who was out at the track. So they actually just did their first event this last week, and uh, he was saying they actually expect the second race to be bigger than the first. And the the, the first race is pretty big, um, you know, upwards of eighty or ninety thousand people for the big race. And so for you know for a race weekend, you're talking about potential of two hundred thousand people in the stands. So it's pretty big. I know the estimate last year for the uh, the March weekend was ninety six thousand visitors to town, and God, the impact financially is in 
you know, upwards of, you know, over $100 million for the week. So it's more than that, actually. I think it's over $200 million. So that they're, they're big weekends. I mean, they're big weekends. And the, the Speedway was a concept, you know, 20-plus years ago that I think a lot of people thought was kind of silly because, it's, uh, you know, it's way on the outside of town, but it's worked out nicely, and they run a busy schedule, and they're out there running like 40-plus weeks a year. So it's, it's, it's been big for the economy. Now, another thing is, uh, you know, people have been teeter-tottering on this, but Bank of America comes in, steps in to save the day for the Las Vegas Raiders. But we've seen this before. What's what's the inside scoop there? What is the the native perspective? Is it for real this time? Yeah, it's for real. It's for real. Um, and it, you actually, you, you kind of nailed it on what the, the natives think of pro sports. And, then, and, you know, I'm glad we started out with NASCAR because that kind of opened the door. Because 20, 25 years ago or longer, I think anyone considering Vegas for you know, to be a pro sports town, probably laughed at the whole notion because of the the image of the town and sports gambling and the the taboo that uh, was connected with Vegas and sports gambling, and that that whole thing's been broken down over the years. And that was the biggest thing with the NFL because I I can remember going back now, man, probably thirteen, fourteen years. I mean, the relationship between Vegas and the National Football League was just completely ridiculous to the point where they actually were. Uh, Skulking around town uh, right before Super Bowl Sunday, trying to shut down uh, Super Bowl parties that were charging admission, um, and they actually had a TV size rule in place, and uh, like any TV in a in a ballroom that was going to be over fifty three inches, it was like the fifty three inch TV rule. They were going to shut down the parties, and um, there was a point where uh, when the Super Bowl was on NBC, remember the show Vegas with the. Uh, with James Kahn, yeah, yeah, they actually they actually pushed on NBC to not run uh, promos for the show Vegas during the Super Bowl. So think about how I mean, you know, if you're that ridiculous, you're that resistant to that the uh, to Vegas, and you're uh, you're that afraid of your image connected to sports gambling for it to come this quickly and roughly you know twelve or thirteen years is it's it's pretty amazing. And but we know why the NFL is short on cities. That'll give them a ton of money. More, this, you know, there's more cities out there that uh, will not publicly fund these stadiums. And Nevada and, and Las Vegas stepped up with a boatload of money. So now the NFL is in this hypocritical position where you know they're, they're anti-gambling, but they're also like, hey, we can't get this kind of money from any other city or very few cities around the country. I mean, I think you know, in the end, how much money was contributed publicly for the uh, the Jets and Giants stadium, right? And I I think most estimates are nothing. Uh, so. It's a new situation now. They're they're kind of desperate. It's a strong word, but you know there aren't there just aren't that many cities that have public money to give to a stadium anymore. And uh, I'll, I'll be there in June, and I've already paid the hotel tax, so uh, they're already starting collect, to collect money for this, no doubt. Yep, yep, yeah. They raised the hotel tax about one point four percent, and point nine percent is going to go towards the stadium. So currently, or I think the two thousand. I don't know the estimate for 2016. I think the 2015 estimate for hotel tax collected was north of about $515 million. So, uh, so each year, you know, the, I would guess occupancy is going to go up this year, but each year they're taking in, you know, roughly $550, $600 million. So, you know, add up the tax on that. And, yeah, we've got a lot of money going towards not only a stadium, uh, if it is built, there's going to be some sort of stadium built because that's part of the deal. If it doesn't go to, the NFL stadium, then it'll go to a college football stadium, which will be about 45,000 seats. Uh, money's going towards that or this uh, 
65,000 piece stadium, and they're doing a gigantic build out of their convention center, which is technically a long block away from the Las Vegas Strip, and now they're going to build it out so that it goes up to the Strip on the property that used to have the uh, the old Riviera on it. Wow, that's exciting. So, you know, I had done a little bit of research, and people there originally there was outrage about the, the, pu- the use of public funds for this, but, you know, I looked at the past couple stadiums that have been built, and, and that's just the way it goes. I mean, I'm looking at the Falcons, Mercedes-Benz Stadium, $600 million worth of public funds. I mean, and, oh, Lucas Oil Stadium for the Colts, $619 million. That's just the way it is. So what is... Like, do people want to finance that out out there? Do they want to welcome the Raiders in? Uh, I would say probably. Well, it's interesting. I, I would say, you know, if you if you ask the callers to the show, I would say it's seventy five twenty five in favor of funding it and and building a stadium. I don't think the people who you know are against it are really sports talk people, which is fine. That's that's kind of the whole point. The money doesn't have to be used. You know, just for for sports purposes, um, some some polling was done. Uh, if different areas around Nevada were able to actually vote on putting the money towards the stadium, it was actually about sixty five percent. On average, it was between like sixty five, maybe down to like fifty seven percent against. Like I don't think it would have it would have been a narrow would have been a narrow uh, win if it was a win at all. So if it had gone to a public vote, because people just do not want to spend money on anything, and this this has been. Uh, more of a conservative state from a tax standpoint. It's kind of flipped around the last few years. But, uh, you know, the thing on, you mentioned the Atlanta Stadium and you mentioned the, the Colt Stadium. The Colt Stadium's probably like eight stadiums. If you look at order of stadiums, you know, that they've you know been completed recently, the Colt Stadium's probably like eight stadiums back in terms of newest stadium. And that one's the highest, I think, you know, it, to my knowledge in recent memory, because I think it was like 86% publicly funded. Yeah. And it has been, it's been going down in almost every location. Like, uh, Minnesota was 68% publicly, uh, backed. Uh, you mentioned Atlanta was around 25 to 30%. Even though it was $600 million, it's probably about 25 to 30%. But they're having more stadiums like, you know, San Francisco, out of whatever it was, $1.4 billion for Levi Stadium was only about 10% publicly funded. So I think that was the argument here. And that was my argument on the air is that, the new standard is somewhere between like zero and twenty percent publicly funded, and I think it would have been fair if Nevada had contributed about twenty percent. I think by the time this thing is done, we're going to be somewhere between at the low end about forty percent, at the high end maybe sixty percent. So uh, we have a lot of you know, just like just like New Jersey, we we have a, we have a lot of need for public money to go elsewhere, um, and we're unlike anywhere else. I mean, we have now nah, you know what everywhere needs infrastructure improvements. We just we're growing so quickly that the roads can't keep up with the population growth. So we've got road work going all the time and, and we need money for that. And we don't have mass transit, uh, you know, outside of buses, we don't have any kind of light rail, the monorail needs to be improved a lot. So our education system is like bottom five. So this might be unusual to hear sports talk. guy talk about the fact that uh, maybe the stadium isn't the most important thing, but that is reality. It's not the most important thing for us. Yeah. So that, I guess the next step would be the owner's vote, which is coming soon, right? So, you know, Jerry Jones and Robert Kraft, they're, they've openly supported the move to Las Vegas. That's a good sign. I mean, if you were for the stadium, that seems like a good sign. So yep. what is the next step? When is the owner's vote? And how do you think it's going to go? I have no idea how it's going to go. This thing has been so secretive. Um, I mean, news has leaked out that because they have to get 24 of 30, the Raiders and Mark Davis have to get 24 of 32 owners to vote yes. So they need 75% 
with a yes vote, and we've heard that there aren't nine owners who are against, but who knows when they get into the room. Uh, they're going to vote possibly on this uh, March 26th. They're going to meet in Phoenix March 26th to 28th. So it's coming up here in uh, you know just over a week now, about a week. And I don't know, because last time we got to this, and I'm not talking about Vegas, but last time the owners were discussing expansion, if you remember, they went to a meeting and the competition was between the Chargers, the Raiders, and the Rams to go to Los Angeles. It looked like the favorite was a Carson City, not Carson City, Carson, California project that was going to hold both the Chargers and the Raiders. And then they go into the meeting, they come out, and I got to tell you, watching the press conference, it looked like both the Spanos family, they own the Chargers, and Mark Davis, uh, the owner of the Raiders, they looked like they were completely shocked with the outcome. And the outcome was, you know, it's Dan Kroenke. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, you and the Rams get to... Uh, take Los Angeles over, and and Kroenke played it right. He bought the property for Hollywood Park. Uh, he owned all of it. He said he was going to build the stadium, and they gave it to him. and And then they set up the line where the Chargers were next, and the Raiders were after that. So I mean, that apparently Kroenke, um, you know, was a power broker and uh, was throwing around some pretty hefty threats and craft, and especially Jerry Jones got behind him. So I think you're right on the fact that, you know, if Jerry Jones is behind you, he's one of the, you know, Goodell in name is the boss of the league, but the real bosses of the league are the owners. And if Jones has the loudest voice along with Kraft and they're, they're pro-Vegas and, you know, they're pro, hey, we can't turn down all this public money, then Vegas has a shot. I still think there's some, there's some dicey elements in this in terms of the funding because uh, the Raiders are taking on a ton of debt. You know, without that, they had a third partner lined up in Sheldon Adelson, a casino owner for $650 million out of $1.9 billion, and he backed out, and now they're basically getting a loan, the Raiders are, so we'll see. We'll see if the owners feel like it's a sturdy deal, because I'm sure they're not going to prove anything that they feel could go could go south, so uh, maybe something comes up in the meeting that delays it. I mean, I just, I'm somewhere between they approve it, or they say, hey, you got to come back in a couple of months, and we got to shore up a couple of details, and you know, then we can really vote on it, but uh, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> All right. So now, you know, the UFC has really found a home. Boxing is very big in Vegas. UFC is very big in Vegas. But the UFC has agreed to become an anchor tenant of the T-Mobile arena other than a casino. And, and, and I think that was a big deal out there, was it? It made big news, but they, they kind of were the anchor tenant of they, – they've been working with uh, the MGM uh, Grand Group forever and using their buildings at Mandalay, which has a – about a 11,000-seat arena, and then the MGM, the old MGM arena, uh, maxed out at, like, 16. So they were pretty much exclusive with that. Um, the, the biggest deal with this is that they have exclusivity on choosing dates because every once in a while they would get blocked. You know, if they had an event, you know, six months out, oh, well, you know, we already, sorry, we already booked up both Mandalay and MGM. So now that there's a, a third building, and it's the Glamorous building, and this one holds upwards of you know, 19,000 for fights. So they have their first dibs on it as they look ahead. And, and, uh, I think we already saw that with, there's rumors that they just, um, the UFC and, and the Mayweather promotions team booked a June 10th date as a backup for Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather. So it's big news, but I, I think there's, here's the deal. Now the MGM, basically they already had, uh, two of the bigger arenas, the two biggest arenas in town. Well, the second and third biggest, because the Thomas and Mac owned by UNLV is the biggest at 18,000. Um, so they already were working with that group. But now 
uh, with T-Mobile. You know, now they've got three different venues. They're going to be at T-Mobile, I would assume, 99% of the time. So, yeah, it's it's sort of big news, but we all knew that there's really nowhere else to go in town. So now the UFC is locked in with the MGM for the uh, foreseeable future. Now, June 10th, is that for real? Is that fight really going to happen, Mayweather and McGregor? I mean, I, I, I talked to Ray Boom Boom Mancini, and he said McGregor's an idiot. He called him a moron for, for wanting to do this. Is that really going to happen, you think? Well, I'm curious. Why did he call him a moron? Because he, he told me, and I have the audio somewhere, but he said basically that McGregor as a champion should respect other champions, and he should not challenge him to a fight like in his own sport, in boxing. Right. So, you know, he said McGregor's a moron. Yeah, yeah, McGregor's a moron. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, well, I mean, he's gonna, he, I think he's going to lose, and I think he's going to lose badly, but, you know, think about it. If he, right now, he's probably making between 12, 15, maybe max 18 million a year, which is very good. <laughs> it's very good. Last night, we saw Triple G, who's arguably the biggest star in the sport of boxing, and, uh, Listen, this is good money for the rest of us, but only made two and a half million dollars. So Conor McGregor is making good money, but I mean, this is the only way he can make the kind of money that Floyd Mayweather and Manny Pacquiao have made recently. So I think on one hand he's going to get—I'm you know, not even going to say slaughtered—he's just going to get picked apart by Floyd Mayweather. But this is the one way he can make sixty, eighty, hundred million plus dollars. So I can't blame him. As far as June tenth, no, I don't think June tenth is happening. There's almost no chance. Um, it's there's too much. Think about it. Uh, Mayweather and Pac-Man took uh, six years of going back and forth. Now I think these two promotional sides are more reasonable than uh, top ranked the, the Pac-Man camp and, and Mayweather were, and that's why that thing took six years. Um, but they have a lot of details to work out. I mean, the, the encouraging things this week, uh, if you want to see that fight, Dana White, uh, the president of the USC and essentially the promoter on Connor's side, has never said that the fight would get done. He's thrown cold water on this thing repeatedly. And he did say on Conan, I think it was on Wednesday, that, uh, yeah, we're not close, but there's too much money out there, so this fight has to be made. So that was a positive sign. And then McGregor was out at Madison Square Garden on Friday night uh, backing up an Irish fighter, Michael Conlon, making his pro debut. And, and Connor also said the fight will get made. And he also mentioned September as the date, and that's what we had heard out here in Vegas that uh, – September is a traditional Floyd month for his fights. Um, there's plenty of time to you know negotiate the thing and, and, and promote it properly. So, yeah, I think there's a, a decent I'm, I mean, with boxing uh, and and mixed martial arts and you know when promoters get involved, I'll never say hey it's a done deal to guarantee it's going to get done. But I think eventually it will get done because there is too much money on the table for both sides. Yeah, no, I agree. Now, speaking of uh, you know upcoming things and we'll talk a little bit about baseball and then a little bit about hockey now baseball i didn't know this but every march i guess the cubs come to town and they they play whatever team so it's i looked up it's sold out to the tune of 18 sellouts over the past 12 seasons at cashman field which is the home of the 51s now with i don't know if you heard i'm sure you've heard that uh, mlb commissioner rob manfred is eyeing vegas as what he said a viable market for a future team But this is just one series. All this sellouts for the Cubs, it's just one series, and now the Cubs are really good. Does the MLB actually have a chance in Las Vegas, or not really? Well, I mean, keep in mind, it's a minor league stadium. It's a triple-A stadium, so it maxes out at, like, 10,500, 11,000. So it's still good. I mean, it's not like they're getting 11,000 for every minor league game they play here with their triple-A Mets team. Um, But, yeah, I I think baseball, baseball would work here with a, with a reasonable stadium. 
Um, it, you know, it'd be an expensive stadium because it would have to be domed. It would have to be like Phoenix because uh, during the summer here, if you want to play day games, and even at night, you know, it's still in the 90s. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty freaking hot. Um, now, I think the, the thing for Manfred is, again, these leagues, just like the NFL, the NFL is looking for cities to put up public money. Um, and they're also looking for cities that can give them leverage in the cities they're currently in. You know, if they don't have new stadiums, and they can say, "Hey, you know, Vegas is out there. Be careful. We'll move, we'll move our team to Vegas if you don't pony up the money for a stadium." And I think that's what MLB needs some leverage in situations where they need new stadiums. So if you're looking at older stadiums uh, where you know it's pretty much the end of the line in Oakland, they have to get a new stadium because the Coliseum is just an old dump and it's uh, you know it's it's terrible. And Tampa, even though, um, you know, that stadium isn't that old, it, it wasn't a great stadium from the get-go, so I think they're looking for leverage that way. So I think Vegas is in the mix as a leverage city, but I also think baseball will have, like, six other cities. Um, and here's the other thing is I question, because now we're getting crazy here, we, we've got the NHL coming up with the expansion draft in, in June, and then they hit the ice in October. So that'll be our first major league franchise. And if the NFL lands here, so you could have NHL and NFL in a city of about 2.2 million, could we really support baseball or the NBA? I guess we're getting a little too aggressive. I would, I don't know, I'd be hesitant to say that the city is big enough. And there's no surrounding area either. I mean, as, as pro-Vegas as I am, it's not like you know, the suburbs of Las Vegas stretch into the desert and there's you know 5 million people in the area. It's just not reality. So I think baseball is kind of, the positive is, um, all pro sports now are to the point. It seems like where they're comfortable with what we do here with sports gambling, that it's regulated, that it's not some dirty deal. They're not worried about players fixing games, which is always a, a ridiculous notion. So these are all positive steps for Las Vegas and, you know, in terms of building itself from a reputation standpoint, a legitimacy standpoint. Now, the last thing, I got a lot of um, hockey fans that are desperately awaiting your thought on the, on the uh the Golden Knights, they're on Periscope now. Someone just said, Vegas will not be able to support an NFL team. No way. Have you been listening? <laughs> um, so uh, Wayne Gretzky just came out. I'm going to play this audio for you. It's like 45 seconds, and we'll talk a little bit about the Golden Knights and what's coming up for them. The National Hockey League, and so Las Vegas is going to get an opportunity to pick some good players from the 30 other teams. And so the commissioner and their office and the union are smart enough to get together now and say, listen, we got to put a half-decent product there so people say, you know what, I love watching our team compete. They play hard. We know they're a young team. We know they're going to get better, and we got a chance. Instead of putting the worst team you can put together yeah. and then saying after two years, you know what, Las Vegas is not a hockey yeah. city. And that's yeah. not fair to the city. That's right. and it's not fair to the National Hockey League. So I think it's going to be very successful. I think George McPhee is one of the hardest-working people that we've ever had in our game. He's had the experiences of being in Vancouver and places like New York Islanders and Washington. Um, I think this franchise is going to be very strong. I think it's going to do very well. Now, the Golden Knights, their first signing is in place. There's some coaches that are starting to fall into place. Are people excited out there for hockey in the desert? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a big deal. It'll be a big deal. Um, you know, long-term viability. I think Gretzky's on to something. you got to have a winning team, and you can't, you know, you can't expand to a city, you know, take all that money because they're getting $550 million in the, in, you know, for an expansion fee and then pluck a team, you know, plant a team in the city that's not going to win for eight years. So they're giving Vegas a chance uh, since it's just one expansion team, just one team is drafting from the rest of the league. They're giving the team here a good chance to win uh, from the get-go. So, yeah, the, the city's fired up. The season ticket base is 
is uh, is solid. They've got probably now upwards of fourteen thousand season tickets sold in in one, three, and and five year packages. So they'll have a really good base of season tickets. And I think you know the first season they should be sold out. And as long as they're competitive by year three, um, this is a city that's you know event driven. It's 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 driven by winners. So whatever the hot event is, uh, if, if the team is pretty good, as long as they're you know, in the running for the playoffs, you know, third or fourth year, you know, at least a 500 team, it'll be good. It's going to be a big event. They built up, you know, unlike a, I mean, most cities are doing it right now, but like unlike Phoenix, which has its arena in the middle of nowhere, uh, this T-Mobile arena is planted right in the middle of the Las Vegas Strip. So uh, from all parts of the Strip, north and south, people can walk straight through the arena. There's obviously points of purchase right there. Uh, they've got some restaurants and bars right out in front of the arena, and then there's all the casinos uh, right around it. So you have this, you know, captive audience that can go have dinner and drinks uh, from whenever they want to start, from you know four until six, and then walk right over to the arena, and then walk right out and do what they were doing before. So uh, yeah, this is because the, there, there's a notion with pro sports in Vegas that the casinos are actually anti uh, events in town, which is so far from the truth. That may have been the case in the '70s. Because I hear all the time from people outside of Vegas, the casinos don't want uh, their patrons to leave the casino. They're fine with patrons leaving the casino because they know they're going to come back eventually. Uh, you have to get them here. You know, anything to draw them here, uh, anything to give them an option of entertainment for four or five hours, they're all about. And, and keep in mind, a casino built the arena. So the casino business is into events. This is a gigantic event town. So you were, one, one thing to address real quick, you were saying, uh, one of your listeners was saying that the NFL won't work here because the, the town won't support the NFL? Yeah. So, so here's the deal on that. I would actually argue that the NFL long-term has a better chance of surviving than the NHL. Because um, I think the NHL, like I said, if the team is not winning, um, then I think there's going to be a struggle here. Because people will drop off. If it is not a hot ticket, people will not go to the games. The NFL to me is, uh, I don't even know what's the right way to put it, I, I, like losing proof in this town because uh, I do believe this is the one market where you actually can count on about 25% of the crowd to be out-of-towners. And in some cases, I think it might be bigger than that. We've got Right now we've got 42 million people coming to town each year. Uh, we're second in the country. Orlando's got more with 62 million. But we've got basically, on average, you know, 850,000 people to come, to come into town each week. Uh, and I think more people will come to town just to make special trips for their team. This will be a great road trip for the road teams. So it may not be the greatest home field advantage most of the time, uh, but there's plenty of money in town. I will guarantee you the casinos will scoop up, uh, casino hosts will scoop up plenty of tickets. You know, if, uh, you know, if there aren't enough locals to go out there, and I think there'll be plenty of locals to go and spend. But this will be such a big event for casinos each. You know, each weekend they're here, whatever it is. In the end, with the preseason games, nine or ten games, that is a virtual guarantee to fill that place. That'll be a hot ticket. It'll be an expensive ticket for all ten of those weeks at sixty-five thousand per game. You know what else would be a hot ticket? A Super Bowl in Las Vegas. Oh my God! <laughs> yeah, I mean it's. This is this is the city, um, you know, for an event like that. Because I don't know if you've covered a Super Bowl before, but one of the challenges of Super Bowl cities are hotel rooms and the location of hotel rooms, and also 
locations to have all of their their big parties. Well, this is the most concentrated outside of uh, well, no, I mean, along with cities like San Diego and New Orleans. Uh, San Diego doesn't get the Super Bowl now because it doesn't have a stadium that's up to snuff. Uh, New Orleans is a great place, but even beyond what what New Orleans has, uh, we have so many hotel rooms here. We're now pushing uh, past, I think it's like 56,000 hotel rooms. Uh, We've got all these venues and clubs that can host parties. The city is... Now, the, the one thing we have to improve is getting people, you know, to and from a stadium. So we have a monorail system here that, you know, is uh, underfunded, and it really isn't complete to the level that it should be, but uh, that's supposed to be remedied once the stadium is done. But, yeah, Super Bowl here would be gigantic, and uh, you want to talk about a destination and demand for tickets. Uh, my guess is that they'll be the most expensive tickets in the history of the Super Bowl. And if the NFL and people around the NFL don't realize it now, when they land in Vegas for a Super Bowl, I think they're going to say quickly to themselves that we need to do this as part of the rotation. You know, every fourth or fifth or sixth year, Vegas has to get the Super Bowl uh, in our rotation. I'm already excited. Okay, so let's go back to the Golden Knights for one second, then I'll let you go. Now, the Golden Knights have a 48-hour window to negotiate with free agents before any team does this offseason. So I looked at the top free agents last night and provided provided that they don't re-sign with their same team. Just give me a yay or a nay or an alternative (laughs) on a couple of these guys. All right, you ready? Yeah. Ben Bishop, goalie from the Lightning. Do you want him or not? <laughs> Daniel, you are more of a hockey person than I am. I am. Uh, I need to get my hockey up to speed, so I couldn't tell you uh, what he's going to command. My guess is uh, that they're going to pluck a couple of decent names <clears throat> via the expansion draft and maybe through free agency. But I, I don't know. I wouldn't expect them, and, and they haven't talked about their strategy yet. Uh, they don't even have a coach in place, but specifically they haven't talked about strategy. My guess is that they're going to stay away from giant name free agents, but I would think they'd have a you know a couple of decent level names uh, just to build around. Um, but, but yeah, I don't think they're going to you know I don't think they're going to be the uh, the Red Sox or uh, Dodgers of MLB going out and scooping up guys at max price. Who else did you want to ask about? No, what do you, I- actually, I'll ask you. What do you what do you think? What tell me what what does a guy like Ben Bishop make? And would you do that if you were an expansion team? Well, see, here's what I would do. See, because I think hockey, especially for a new team, you need to be able to market one or two guys. So so I sort of disagree in a way with you because I think that if you pull a Ben Bishop or a TJ Oshie, you, you get one of those guys, you're able to market them to a city like, hey, on a billboard, there's TJ Oshie from the Washington Capitals. Yeah. Now he's playing for us. And I only think that's going to help. So I, I think in that sense they will go after – you know, a big name guy like a Ben Bishop, a TJ, a Del Zotto, even a, a, a Yamri Yager. He's forty-five years old. He wants to play till fifty. Let's let's give him a shot in Vegas. Sign him to a two-year deal, and see, let's see what happens. So, yeah, I don't I don't necessarily disagree with you. I just don't know that that's going to be the approach. But like I said, they've been planning pretty close to the vest about what they're going to do. So uh, uh, they, yeah, I, I don't I don't think they, I don't know that they're going to be desperate to have a gigantic name. On the roster, because I think they're gonna they're gonna get at least two or three years of that that new shiny feeling, and people are just gonna gravitate to the team. Uh, and it's not gonna really matter if they have a megastar on the team. But I might be wrong. We'll see. We'll find out. We're gonna we're certainly gonna find out here pretty soon. 
Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a fair point. That's a fair point, too. All right, Steve, so I'll, I'll let you go. This is this has been great, actually. So just a shout-out to the people here in New Jersey, because I've listened to you online. So let them know where they can find your work and, uh, and uh, you know, online, on Twitter, on wherever you are. Yeah. <clears throat> you can find me on Twitter at Steve Cofield. So the last name is C-O-F-I-E-L-D. And uh, the stream of the show, I'm on a little later your time. I'm on 3 to 6 Pacific uh, Afternoon Drive. Monday to Friday on the ESPN affiliate out in Las Vegas, so 6 to 9 Eastern. And you can listen at lvsportsnetwork.com. They're streaming up there. And uh, I do work from time to time on Sirius XM. I'm on Channel 93, so I do all the post-fight stuff, post-fight shows late night after USC pay-per-views. And uh, then every once in a while I'm filling in on, on Mad Dog Radio from out here. So yesterday I actually filled in from uh, 3 to 7, so I'm on Channel 82 as well so you can hear me in a couple of spots awesome all right steve so thanks for coming on i appreciate your time and uh obviously you're very knowledgeable about all this stuff and, and we'll see what happens i think i'm going to become a raiders fan <laughs> anytime danielle and uh you know what i'll, I'll have to give you a call for your hockey knowledge because you know a lot more than i do <laughs> all right thanks i appreciate it okay see you danielle okay bye Bye. well if you didn't know uh anything about las vegas and sports i hope you've uh, got a great education now i mean that was awesome so Steve Cofield, check him out. Uh, it's on Las Vegas. If you just go into Google Las Vegas Sports Network, it'll come up. Um, it's uh, 6 to 9 Eastern time. So it does a great show out there. Sixty minutes overtime. Hurry up offense with Danielle McCartan. All right, so some spring training news. The New York Yankees were bested by the Baltimore Orioles 5-4 in Tampa. The New York Mets rallied behind 10 hits to top the St. Louis Cardinals 5-4. Tim Tebow, wearing number 97, laced a 95-mile-an-hour fastball for an opposite field single. He's collected four hits in his last eight at-bats. Team USA advanced in the World Baseball Classic after an Adam Jones over-the-wall catch all but sealed the deal on a 6-3 win over the reigning champion Dominican Republic. In NHL news, the New Jersey Devils will take on the Columbus Blue Jackets at 1 p.m. at The Rock. The Devils are coming off a 6-4 loss Friday night in Pittsburgh. The Blue Jackets are riding high after an overtime win over the New York Islanders 3-2. Cam Atkinson netted the game winner 1 minute and 19 seconds into the overtime period. With that win, Columbus is tied for first in the NHL standings. The New York Rangers held off the Minnesota Wild last night, 3-2. With that, the Rangers won their 26th road game of the season, which is the most in the, NF, in, in the NHL. In women's tennis, the Women's Indian Wells Masters features two Russians competing in its finals today, Svetlana Kuznetsova and Elena Vis. Vesnina at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. In men's tennis, Switzerland is well represented as it's Stan Varinka and Roger Federer will face off in the Indian Wells Masters at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Federer topped Varinka on January 26th in the Australian Open, the last time the two met. In boxing, from the world's most famous arena, Madison Square Garden, in a pay-per-view boxing match, Gennady Triple G Golovinkin versus Daniel Miracle Man Jacobs you know, 70% of people on Twitter were expecting Triple G to win by knockout. The fight went the distance, though, with Triple G pulling out the win with by a 115-112, 115-112, 114-113 decision. Now in NBA, finally, the Brooklyn Nets are playing a Sunday matinee at noon, 10 minutes from now, at the Barclays Center against the Dallas Mavericks. The Mavs are up 1-0 in the season series. 
And the Knicks are traveling to L.A. right now to take on the Clippers Monday night at 10.30 p.m. Eastern Time at the Staples Center. The Cavaliers rested Kevin Love, LeBron James, and Kyrie Irving to the disdain of the home crowd last night in Cleveland. I'm Danielle McCartan, and that was your 60-minute overtime hurry-up offense. All right, you know that by now. Even if you are not a college basketball fan, you've seen it on TV. <laughs> it's the college basketball theme song. We are in March Madness. Now, for those of you at home, like, March Madness, yeah, yeah. Where did it actually get its name? Well, I did a little research for you. Here it goes. The term March Madness, it started in Illinois in uh, 1908, where 900 high school teams in a statewide tournament in the 1930s. This guy, Henry V. Porter. He's the assistant executive secretary of the Illinois High School Association, a former teacher and coach. He was so impressed by the phenomenon that he wrote an essay to commemorate it entitled March Madness. It first appeared in Illinois Scholastic, Interscholastic, uh, the magazine in 1939. He followed up in 1942 with a poem. Remember, this guy was a scholar and he coined the term. He followed up with this poem. It's called, this is written in 1942. As the World War II waged on, it's called Basketball Ides of March. And I'll read it for you. This is of Henry V. Porter from Illinois. And then obviously after Illinois, it spread throughout the country. And it became adopted in terms of a college basketball tournament. So here it is. This is by Henry V. Porter. It's called the Basketball Ides of March in 1942. I'll do my best. <laughs> the gym lights gleam like a beacon beam and a million motors hum. In a goodwill fight on Friday night for basketball welcome, beckons, come. A sharpshooting might is king tonight. The madness of March is running. The winged feet fly, the ball sail high, and field goal hunters are gunning. The colors clash as silk suits flash and race on a shimmering floor. Repressions die and partisans vie in a goal-acclaiming roar. On a championship trail toward a holy grail, all fans are birds of a feather. It's fiesta night, and the cares lie light when the air is full of leather. Since time began, the instincts of man prove cave and current men kin. On tournament night, the stage and, and the white are relatives under the skin. It's festival time, sans reason or rhyme, but with the nationwide appeal. In a cyclone of hate, our ship of state rides high on an even keel. With war nerves tense, the final defense is the courage, strength, and will. In a million lives where freedom thrives and liberty lingers still. Now eagles fly and heroes die beneath some foreign arch. Let their sons tread where hate is dead in a happy madness of March. Henry V. Porter, 1942. Obviously, World War II he's talking about. So what I love, what I love about March Madness, uh, there's, here's my little list. Things I love. Number one, Cinderella stories. Florida Gulf Coast in, in 2013, number 15 seed, comes out and beats Georgetown and San Diego State. Actually, the year after that, they experienced a 36% spike in freshman enrollment the next year. Believe that? How's that for March Madness? 2013 as well, Wichita State, the number nine seed, comes out and beats the, gets to the final four. Beats Gonzaga and Ohio State. This year's Cinderella story, maybe we're looking at the University of Rhode Island. 
They got their first win in a tournament since 1998 this year, or last week, or whatever. How many days ago? It's, it's a big blur. Lamar Odom was on hand to watch them win it all. And guess what? They haven't won a game in the tournament since he's been there. Second thing I love about March Madness, players are playing inspired basketball. I underline that. Inspired basketball. They're fighting for offensive rebounds. They're abiding by the rules. They're playing fundamentally sound basketball, strategically sound basketball. These kids have it. They want to win. They want to win. They are playing completely inspired, other than their professional counterparts. You know, LeBron James, Kyrie Irving, and Kevin Love all sitting out. Someone tweeted before, they're going to have waiter service on the sideline now in NBA games. I mean, come on, really? These kids want to play. They want to play every minute, and they're playing inspired ball. That's what I love. That's That should be number one. That's what I love about NCAA basketball. And, of course, number three, you get some prizes for watching and, and win some money maybe and get some bragging rights. And, and right now I'm going to brag because guess what? My bracket, where is it? I had it up here. Here it is. I, you know, first of all, I played a couple brackets. I mean, who doesn't? Who only has one? Nobody. Um, but I only play the free ones for now. I'm not in Vegas just yet. So I played a free bracket, and I, I'm going to spin this around on, on Periscope to show you. Uh, in my daytime line of work, I don't know if you could see that on there, what percentile I'm in. I'm in the 97th percentile in my best bracket. In my line of work during the daytime, that's an A. 97 is an A. <laughs> this is the Capital One bracket, the official one. I'm ra- let, me, let me refresh this just to be sure. Oh, yeah, it still says 97 percentile. I'm in 54,000th. One of my friends said, oh, that's still like 54,000th. Do you know how many people are playing? Do you know how many people are playing this? Like millions. So in this bracket, my best bracket, I have Duke winning it all. Nova kind of screwed me up last night because I did have them going to the, uh, the Elite Eight. But my final four is Duke over Gonzaga. My friend wasn't happy about that either. Uh, Kansas over UNC. And Duke is going to beat UNC in the final. That's what I have. Tiebreaker score of 86 points together, altogether. Might be a little low, but I'm riding high. I think I'm doing all right. Hey, Uncle Leo. So I'm in the 97th percentile. So the prize that I have is uh, in this particular bracket. I'm in the $100,000 bracket. I'm in this, all of them. But this one is a trip to the Final Four, which is in uh, the University of Phoenix Stadium, Phoenix, Arizona, April 1st and 3rd, 2017. I might be there. You never know. Let's go Duke. Let's go Kansas. Uh, Who else do I have? Oregon, UNC, UCLA, Gonzaga. Gonzaga. (laughs) Baylor, Duke. I mean, there's a lot of green checks in this box. So let's see. Let's see. I think I'm doing good. And this is the one that I actually took my time on. Because sometimes people don't take their time on things. So there was a a set of brackets that I did where I just actually, I actually closed my eyes and just picked, (laughs) picked, picked, picked. And that one's not doing too good. So this is the one I actually took my time on and doing. And I'm in the 97th percentile. So maybe after today we'll be talking a little bit different. But stay tuned because I'm putting some screenshots up on my uh, on my my uh, Twitter feed. So you can check that out. Who wins, Louisville or Michigan? Oh, what bracket is that? See, the only problem I have is that you can't find who's where. Because why is like Princeton in the West? Tell me where in Louisville and Michigan, which side they're on. Oh, here it is. Louisville and Michigan, they're in the Midwest region, top right of your brackets. I have Louisville going on. <laughs> Louisville, I got. For, for uh, whoever just asked me on Periscope, I got Louisville today. 
And I actually have them going to the Louis to the uh, Elite Eight as well. Let's go to Louisville. Big red, right? <laughs> um, all right, so uh, and that's it. So the best one I have, I have Duke winning it all, defeating UNC. And uh, that's that. Muhammad Wilkerson, you're listening to 60 Minute Overtime on 90.3 FM. Hey, come on, come all to the New York Jets Circus. Big Barnum and Bailey's going out of business, but you can come to Florham Park to see the Jets Circus. <laughs> I think this, I might keep this for the rest of the football season for the Jets Circus music. That's right. So every week we talk about how the Jets don't have an off-season plan. Well, guess what? There's more evidence now. The Jets do not have an off-season plan because guess what? They just signed cornerback free agent Morris Claiborne from the Cowboys. They're replacing Darrell Rivas' number 24, which I'm wearing right now, with a new number 24 at cornerback. Oh, but wait! GM Mike McCagnan says they could still draft a cornerback, everybody. Oh, yes. McCagnan must be celebrating St. Patty's Day a little bit too hard, everybody. Why would they sign Morris Claiborne? And draft a cornerback at the same time. They signed him to a one-year, $5 million prove-it contract, which is fine, I guess. So I just went to Twitter to, to uh, see what the Twitter people are saying. Well, there were some colorful comments on there saying, quote, he drinks Coca-Cola. <laughs> He's injury-prone. And there are gifs of Julian Edelman breaking his ankles so bad that he falls on the ground. So... Let's see. I looked up his stats. He's got a five-season career. Guess what? He's got four. One, two, three, four interceptions in five years in the season, uh, in the league. Five seasons in the league, four interceptions. Now, I'm no mathematician, but that averages to less than one per season. He's got 27 passes defensed, which is roughly... Five per season. Woo-hoo! And guess what, everybody? He's never played a full season. The guy averages, let's just say, 7.8 games per season. Eight games a season. Last I checked, there are 16 games in the season over 17 weeks, obviously including the bye week. So, listen, Morris Claiborne, they're paying him $5 million to play eight games? Well, let's, let's see. I, again... I'm no mathematician, but if you're getting $5 million, let me get the calculator out here. Google, let's see. Let's see. So you get paid $5 million, right, divided by eight games. That's what you're projected to play in. You make $625,000 a game. That's not a bad deal. Good job. Good for you, Morris Claiborne. And by the way, if the Jets draft a cornerback, well, then maybe he won't even be playing eight games. So, uh, this guy is considered, or I've considered him one of the biggest draft busts in NFL history. He was uh, the two, uh, first round draft pick, pick number six overall in the 2012 draft, and he has been nothing but uninspired this entire time. <laughs> oh, let's see here, y'all. And remember, the Florham Park Circus, 
will play their games in East Rutherford, New Jersey at MetLife Stadium. J-E-T-S. Just end the season. <laughs> now the other thing is uh, Darrell Revis, everybody. Let's flash back. Let me throw you back to February 19th, my show, 60 Minute Overtime, February 19th, which was, what's today? Look, March 19th, exactly one month ago today, I came on to tell you that Darrell Rivas was innocent. And in case you weren't there, here's what I had to say. Maybe they were stalking him throughout the bar the whole entire night, following him, but there were two bars in question. Maybe they followed him from one to the other. And then the kid took out the cell phone. He was probably, you know, being nice to them, being nice to them, being nice to them. But do you know what? Enough is enough. The kid took out the cell phone. Were they even heckling him? They might have even been heckling him. I mean, Darrell Rivas didn't have the best year, right? So these kids must have been saying stuff to him all night long, followed him out of the bar at closing time, and Darrell Rivas just had enough. And I could certainly sympathize with that. You're being followed. You're being recorded. And maybe he already had taken a photo with them inside the bar, right? Because that's the kind of guy Darrell Rivas is. That, I mean, I don't know him, but that was my impression of him having met him twice in two very different situations. Interviewing him twice in two very different situations. Cool, calm, collected, easygoing, very relaxed, put me at ease, very chivalrous. I mean, this is, what this came out, this was a very different Darrell Rivas than, than what I've seen that we know on the field. I, I could definitely believe someone like uh, a Josh Norman doing something like this. You see what he does on the field. You see how irritable he gets on the field. Of course he's going to do it off the field. I've never seen Darrell Rivas act like that on the field. So I'm thinking that this guy, or these two guys, kids, 21 and 22, by the way, at 2.43 in the morning, I wouldn't doubt that these kids were taunting him, heckling him, annoying him. I mean, for Christ's sake, a, a guy with a pit helmet, because that's where Darrell Rivas went to school, you know, he's walking to turn himself in on Friday night, and a, there's a guy with a standing there with a, a pit helmet and a Sharpie trying to get an autograph at the, as the guy's walking to turn himself in. So guess what, everybody? This is current. This is live now. Guess what? Darrell Rivas is innocent. Charges are dropped. Yes, someone said, but you're wearing his jersey on Periscope. Of course I'm wearing his jersey. I am a Darrell Rivas fan. I wish, he was, I wish I could still wear this because I wish he was still on the Jets. So his lawyer, Rivas' lawyer, Robert Del Greco, told ESPN, quote, It was patently clear to me this was a misguided prosecution. And as I've been saying all along, Darrell Rivas was guilty of absolutely nothing. In all probability, he was a victim. When the record was done, it was clear Darrell Rivas may have been a victim of harassment or an assault, but certainly was not culpable for any crimes. End quote. Let me just uh, throw it to my girl Carrie Underwood to uh, express what I want to say right now. That's right. I told you so. I knew he would be innocent. I told you. I hope you guys like that because I think that is a perfect song for this. I told you so that Darrell Rivas was going to be innocent. I think the Jets royally flubbed this. Rivas has come on and said he's in top condition. He's eager to play. And even he would be willing to change positions. Oh, my God. No way. 
Shame on the Jets for letting Darrell Rivas walk. He would have made a great safety in New York and a great mentor to a young cornerback. This is a mess. This is a mess. So not only did they let him walk, they let him go. They just let him go. They didn't get anything in return for him. So they found somebody new, and his name is Morris Claiborne. And yes, he even wears number 24. Oh my God, what are you Jets doing? You know what? For Darrell Rivas, he's got a Super Bowl ring. I hope he goes to another contender, and I hope he wins a Super Bowl. Because in New York Jets, never going to win one. Not in my lifetime, I don't think. Jonathan Hankins from the New York Giants. You're listening to 60 Minutes Overtime on 90.3 FM. I get knocked down, but I get up again. Who do you think we could possibly be talking about here? Oh, Giants fans, it's going to be Geno Smith, everybody. Woohoo! Reactions to the Geno Smith signing pending physical already all over social media. Someone on Facebook, a very dear friend of mine whose name I will keep anonymous, says... This has to be a joke. (laughs) He's a Giant fan, by the way. Geno Smith will get a new clean slate this season. Uh, He's going to get a new team. He's going to get a new locker room. And yes, he gets knocked down, but he gets up again. You know what I'm referencing? Of course I'm referencing when he got cracked in the jaw, broke his jaw. That's what I'm referencing. But, you know, listen, Geno Smith, he's going to get a new clean slate, a new team, a new locker room. But guess what? Brandon Marshall and him both moved to New York Giants. That could be quite awkward. Let's do the awkward turtle here on video here. That could be quite awkward because guess what? If you remember correctly, that, yeah, Geno Smith to Brandon Marshall in New York. That's right. If you remember correctly, before the beginning of last season, you had veterans Brandon Marshall Herc Decker and Nick Mangold were really, really vocal about having Ryan Fitzpatrick be their quarterback last season, if you remember correctly, right? Now, I made the argument on this show that it wasn't pro-Fitzpatrick. It's anti-Geno. That's what I had said. It's not pro-Fitz. It's just anti-Geno. So now he goes to – Brandon Marshall first goes to New York Giants. Geno Smith is following him. This is like, you know, New York Jets East – so the depth chart for the Giants quarterbacks looks like this. Uh, starter, obviously, is going to be Eli Manning. Then followed by new signee, Josh Johnson. And then followed by third, Geno Smith's pending physical. Watch out, Giant fans, because guess what? The Dallas Cowboys went down to their third at the quarterback this past season, and his name is Dak Prescott. Dak Prescott is greater than Geno Smith any day of the week with one hand tied behind his back. So if I'm a Giant fan... 
I am praying to the Almighty God that Eli Manning will stay healthy this entire season. Every single night I'm going to get down on my knees and pray. Eli Manning, please, please be safe. Be safe out there. Now, I talked to Ryan Nassib over, uh, I covered the Giants in the training camp on August 5th of the, this past year. And uh, I got a one-on-one interview with Ryan Nassib in the Timex Center over there. And this, listen, in, in all seriousness, this this might not be the worst move for Geno Smith because Eli Manning is one of the best. Geno Smith has the opportunity to learn from one of the best. What he does with that opportunity, uh, we won't know. All right, we, we won't know. Here's what Ryan Nassim had to say about, about learning from Eli Manning and working so closely with Eli Manning. Learn from him that you could take away from the game and making you, yourself a better quarterback. Uh, man, it's, it's hard to admit. I've learned so much over the years. And, uh, you know, from uh, the, not, not only football, you know, not even on the field, but the meeting rooms and the locker room, you know, um, I learned lessons from him that he doesn't even know about. So, uh you know, he's been a great, uh, great help uh, in my development, and uh, um, you know, he's always there to, you know, offer advice or suggestions, stuff like that. And always, he's easy to answer questions, and um, and uh, you know, very grateful. And the single piece of it, the best single piece of advice Eli's given you. Best single piece? Oh man, I don't know if I can say that publicly, but now. <laughs> uh, um, He's, you know, I think he, he completely revamped the way I watch film and study film. And uh, in terms of breaking down opponents and stuff like that, he, I thought I knew what I was doing before I met him, and then he's completely, he, you know, kind of changed my way of thinking. You know, seeing it and thinking about it. Now, obviously he said great words. Eli Manning, Professor Manning, if you will, has revamped the way he studied, approached the game. So listen, Geno Smith. This is my advice to you. This is the best possible situation for you. You need to lay low. You need to learn. You need to learn on the field and off the field stuff from Eli Manning, just as Ryan Nassib told me he did as well over the years. You need to accept your role. You are not a starting cornerback. Quarterback. You need to learn from one of the best in history, Eli Manning. And if you can do that, you might be... You might have, how would I say this, a, a renaissance. You might have a renaissance in your career, a resurrection. That's what I'm looking for, a resurrection in your career. If you learn, if you stay humble, stay kind, right? That's a song from, uh, was it Tim McGraw? Stay humble, stay kind. Then, then if you could do that, you might experience a resurgence. But for now, you have to accept the fact that you are not a starting quarterback in this league. And you need to take some notes. Why don't you bring a pen and paper? to practice and just take some notes. That's right, non esistono più. They don't exist anymore. Italy was knocked out of the World Baseball Classic. 
in, in dramatic fashion. Oh my god. I don't stay up past 9.30. You, you guys might know that. If you don't know it, you know it now. Man, I stayed up to watch Italy in the play-in game on, on Tuesday night till 1 a.m. Oh, they are, uh, listen, they, they finished 1-2 and two with everyone else in their pool except for Cuba. They had to play a play-in game versus Venezuela. But first, let's go back. I talked to manager Marco Mazzieri in, in October, the end of October. Met him for the first time. And, you know, I just talked to him about his projection and, and his thoughts on this team during this WBC 2017 and here's what Marco Mazzietti, the manager of Team Italy, had to tell me. Hey, I'm Danielle Carton here at the NIAF Gala and Expo in Washington, D.C., with none other than the Squadra Italia manager, Marco Mazzieri. Marco, um, you're, you're here at this gala. A lot of people that are coming up to this table are almost saying to us, oh, we didn't know Italy had a baseball team. What do you say to people like that? Well, I think that is, is kind of a cliche, but uh, uh, every four years when we do play in the classics and, and especially... Uh, after we do so well, uh, we like to to shock you know people. As uh, as one of our motto was uh, before the classic in 2013, it was shock the world. And, and I think by playing the way we play in the classic, uh, we open a lot of eyes. So now you guys are ranked number nine in the world above Venezuela, and Puerto Rico, which are known powerhouses in baseball. Well, the ranking of the International Federation uh, consider uh, many different things. It's, it's not necessarily uh, how strong is the national team. It goes down to the junior leagues and, and all that kind of stuff. So that's where the ninth uh, position in the ranking uh, is about. Uh, of course, uh, you know, all these teams that we're going to play in the Classic are, are very, very good teams and, and uh, from a talent-wise uh, point, uh, it's very difficult. But uh, we're confident. Uh, we, we've been the underdogs uh, for the last two Classics uh, and, uh, and we, we actually played very well and, uh, and uh, we were able to advance to second round uh, four years ago. And we're looking forward to do that this time, even though we're going to be in a bracket with uh, Venezuela, Puerto Rico, and Mexico, which is very tough. But, you know, one single game, you, you can beat anybody. So uh, we just, uh, what's important for us is to be able to recreate uh, the energy uh, we had during the Classic in 2013. We had gate chemistry in the clubhouse, a lot of uh, veteran guys who mesh well with our guys coming from Italy, and that's what we're looking for for next Classic. So what is the impact of having uh, an Italian-American player from the MLB come and join the uh, Squadra Italia? You know, this is really strange and, and, and kind of funny to say, but uh, uh, my first Classic was in 2009, and uh, for some reason we were able to just create the right mix with this Major League Baseball player and, and some of our guys who, who do different things other than play. And, uh, and the, the excitement level was so high from both sides that uh, they kind of carry each other and they feed off from each other. And that's how we were able to accomplish what we did. So who do you have confirmed playing on the team this year from the MLB? Uh, I could confirm uh, Francisco Cervelli and Drew Butera will be our two catchers. Okay. And uh, Chris Colabello will be at first base a split in time, hopefully with Mike Napoli. Cool. Uh, if, if 
nothing goes uh, wrong, we should be able to have Mike as well. And uh, Johnny Giabotella, he's been a second baseman for the Los Angeles Angels, will be there. Pat Venditti, the, the ambidextrous uh, pitcher uh, who we had four years ago, will be back as well. And of course, some of the other guys we had, Thiago da Silva and, and hopefully Jason Grilly as well. So you have uh, Frank Catalanato on the bench as a coach. Uh, what has he been able to do for the, the team? Actually, you know, I love Frankie. Frankie's a great baseball guy. Uh, not to speak about how, how great guy he is. And uh, it's just, just so good to have him in, in the coaching staff. And, uh, and uh, I can tell you that we're going to have Nick Punto as one of our coaches. So that's going to be another great addition. He's, he was great uh, on his playing days with us. He loved being uh, with us playing for Team Italy, and uh, I know he's very excited about joining the coaching staff and he's looking forward to it. And, and uh, both of those guys, either Frank and Nick, will be a great addition because they bring Major League experience, they have a lot of enthusiasm, and they love being on Team Italy. Great. Now, um, the reinstatement we just found out of baseball into the Olympics, how will that affect your programs moving forward? Well, it's going to be a huge effect because uh, just consider this. Uh, Non-Olympic federations in Italy share 10% of the public contribution from the government. Okay. Now, by being on, on uh, the Olympic sports sites, you can get to share the 90% of those, con of those uh, funding from the government. So it's going to be a huge difference. And uh, hopefully, we'll be able to accomplish uh, uh, a lot more things that we did in the past. So as manager, uh, what are you looking forward to this, this coming World Baseball Classic? Well, again, uh, we're looking forward to to compete and, and to show everybody that uh, uh, Italy has a good baseball team and uh, and uh, we're going to be looking to open up some more eyes and hopefully advance to the second round like we did. So we are going to be attending together in Brooklyn. It's the Italian-American baseball family launch party, launch dinner, uh, with a lot of the stars from past and present from the Italian team. Um, that's going to be in conjunction with uh, Joe Qualiano's Mint Pros. Uh, we're going to be at Carmine's in Brooklyn. Uh, what are your expectations for that event? Well, I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be great. Uh, I think just to be able to have so many players in, in one room and so many celebrities in one room all together, and all of them being there to uh, help uh, Italian baseball program, just just great. I mean, it just tells you a lot about uh, Italian, uh, the Italian family throughout baseball around the world. And it's bringing awareness to the Americans. Oh, of course, there yes. and here in yes. Washington. Yes, but we know we have a lot of fans here in the U.S. Uh, uh, every time we play, uh, I get uh, uh, how you say witnesses uh, of uh, of uh, how the Italian baseball team is loved throughout the world, and especially here in the U.S. Great. Okay. Well, I'm I'm Danielle McCartan with Marco Manzari here in uh, in the NIAF Expo in D.C. Thank you. Thank you. Grazie. <laughs> Oh, man. So, listen, I, I talked about it already. The world, shock the world is the motto there. Shock the world. Italy ended up finishing uh, one and two, like everyone else in their pool, except for Cuba. So, Italy got to play the playing game versus Venezuela. This was, again, Tuesday night into Wednesday morning. And Wayne Randazzo and I are in uh, agreement that the game should be, you know, a little more early. The only reason I could stay up till one in the morning to watch this was because we had a snow day on Wednesday. We had the blizzard come in. So that's the only reason why I got to watch this. So it was a very exciting game. It was back and forth. 
and Italy ended up losing the play-in game to make it to round two, I believe it was. It was uh, 11 to 10, and it was just in heartbreaking fashion. And, and it was 10 innings, back and forth, back and forth. You didn't know what was going to happen. So Italy this time did not get to shock the world. And I think that's quite unfortunate because I am a fan, as I said before, of Cinderella stories. This would be the ultimate Cinderella story. I had such an attachment to this Italy team, having partnered with Min Pros and, and uh, Joe Quagliano from Min Pros. Got to know these guys really well, like Cervelli, Butera, Colabello, Vendite, um, including Marco Mazzieri. He's the one I know the best out of all of them. So, you know, it was a little it was a little disheartening for me as a fan, um, even a little bit more involved than a fan in this t- to see them lose. But, you know. It's about rebuilding. Maybe some of these guys are going to be coaches next next time around, and maybe Frank Catalanato is going to take over as manager because guess what? Italy has lost a, uh, a surefire guy in Marco Mazzietti because after playing baseball in Italy for 20 years, he managed Team Italy for 10 years. He was a scout in Europe for the Dodgers. He uh, He's called it quits. So I wish Mar- Marco Mazzietti and the best of luck. It's sad for me to see the end of this era because I only got to see the end of the era, really. I've gotten to know, like I said, Mazzietti and his sister over the past couple months since October. Surely he's going to be missed both in Italy and here in America. And they just need to find a, a good replacement for him. And you, know, you, can, you can never replace the best. You just have to hope someone can take over as well as he did. So, unfortunately, that's that's the end of the road for Mazzietti and, and Team Italy. Um, but I guess now we can root for uh, Team USA, right? They, they uh, advanced last night. So let's root for Team USA. Again, some important dates to remember. Uh, the NFL draft is going to be April 27th. So that's uh, a little over a month from now. So let's do a quick wrap-up and review some topics that we went over today. Jose Fernandez, the Marlins pitcher. Yes, drunk, high on cocaine, speeding, and behind the wheel of his boat, doing top speed, maxing out that boat at 65 miles an hour. Ended up in the death of him and two of his friends. That completely taints the legacy for me, for him. Uh, We had on Steve Cofield, who gave us an education on uh, Las Vegas, pro sports in Las Vegas, including NASCAR, uh, the Raiders, NFL, UFC, MLB, and even NHL, Wayne Gretzky and the the Golden Knights, uh, everything about that. Uh, We had a What the F story that Manny Ramirez has a new contract in Japan that he's always apparently wanted to play in Japan with optional practices on all-you-can-eat sushi. What? And by the way, he's worth $110 million. Uh, hurry up offense, couple topics, including spring training, NHL, women's, men's, tennis, boxing, and the NBA. March Madness brackets, the beginnings of March Madness, even the poem I read you from 1942. I thought that was a little nice touch. Yeah, Cinderella, what I love about March Madness, my, my list of Cinderella stories, players playing inspired basketball. And, of course, prizes for winning. And, and uh, right now underway is the Louisville and Michigan game. Louisville's up by 3, 17-14. I do have Louisville in this game, and in, even advancing to the Elite Eight. So let's go, Louisville. I'm in the 97th percentile. Yeah. <laughs> and then we had the circus, the New York Jets circus, in my opinions, on Morris Claiborne and Darrell Rivas. Uh, his exoneration, obviously. And then we had the New York Giants uh Geno Smith, what do you think about that, Giants fans? Geno Smith is coming to your team. And finally, we wrapped up with the World Baseball Classic and Team Italy. And that's that. 
So again, my site is prosportsrundown.com. My Twitter, at Coach, M-C-C-A-R-T-A-N. YouTube, search Coach Space McCartan. SoundCloud.com slash Coach McCartan. On demand, because I'm going to make this into a podcast as soon as I'm done and edit it down and stuff. iTunes podcast is Coach Space, M-C-C-A-R-T-A-N in the iTunes store or whatever it is, the Apple store, whatever. Tune in radio. You can listen to me on your Sonos system. Type in 60-minute overtime, all with spaces, and it's 660 play.google.com for you android users search coach with no spaces m-c-c-a-r-t-a-n and a quick nod to the people on periscope checking me out today at coach mccartan over there on periscope thank you and for those of you guys on facebook live thank you facebook.com slash coach mccartan hope to get a couple articles up this week and stay tuned stay tuned to what's going on a lot of stuff going on friday night hopefully i'll be able to get out to uh chelsea Piers with randy zelia from back sports page to interview uh, the McCordy twins and Mohamed Sanu and hopefully Chris Hogan might be there. So Patriots fans, Falcons fans, I know there's a, a Falcons fans always, uh, always on Periscope watching is Rise Up Nation. At Rise Up Nation, uh, stay tuned. I, I might have something from Mohamed Sanu for you. So if you have any questions for uh, Devin McCordy, Jason McCordy, Mohamed Sanu, Mike Teal, new head coach of the Don Bosco football program in New Jersey, uh, who else is expected? Maybe Chris Hogan, uh, a couple other guys. So if you have any other questions, I'll, I'll retweet that link. And, and if you have any questions for them that you want me to ask them, please let me know. I have a plan for Devin McCordy. I hope he, he acquiesces to doing this with me. I hope so. We have a little bit of a relationship now that it's not so abrupt, but I got a good plan. Hopefully he does it. So stay tuned for all that guys. That's going to be coming very, very soon. Hopefully next week I'd like to talk about uh, possible landing spots for Tony Romo and the pitchers in the home run derby, let's see. And are the Rangers a deep playoff threat? All right. So that's what I got for you for this week. Thanks for checking me out. Uh, you know, stay tuned on Facebook.com slash Coach McCartan and on Twitter, Coach McCartan there too, for any new stuff that I come out with this week. And uh, if not, if you don't want to do that, just tune in next week. Tune in next week, 11 a.m. here. Same time, same place. Ciao, grazie. Follow me on Twitter at Coach McCartan. That's at Coach M C C A R T A N. To find my work on YouTube and SoundCloud, search with no spaces Coach McCartan. Subscribe yourself so you don't have trouble finding it in the future. That's it for today, everybody. Listen live next Sunday, 1 30 to 2 30 p.m.